0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised.
0: After Carla Hamolka left Paul Bernardo in January 1993, he continued living in the little pink house they rented near St. Catharines, Ontario. Alone except for their dog, Buddy, Bernardo wandered around the empty house. He attempted to reach his wife by telephone, and when that didn't work, Bernardo made a cassette tape he planned to send to her.
2: I've been here for five days alone. It's not a long
1: time, but it's, it's hardly you alone. It's pretty hard pal, I walk to the house sometimes I go car, car, Carla, car, hey car, but I don't get any answer,
0: (laughs) it hurts so much, it (laughs) hurts Bernardo didn't send the cassette to Homolka because he didn't know where to find her. She was in hiding 100 kilometers away at her aunt and uncle's place. Bernardo continued living on his own until an evening about six weeks later when a knock at the door changed everything. Distracted by a phone call, Bernardo opened the door and on the porch were two men. Within seconds, they flashed their police badges then barged into the house, guns drawn, shoving Bernardo face-first into a wall before putting him in handcuffs. I'm Kathy Kanzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we continue looking back at the infamous crimes and trial of Paul Bernardo. When Paul Bernardo was arrested on February 17th, 1993, He was charged in connection with a series of violent sexual assaults in Scarborough. He was also a suspect in the kidnapping and killings of 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey and 15-year-old Kristen French. But police didn't lay murder charges until three months later, after a plea agreement was reached with Bernardo's estranged wife, Carla Homolka. The murder charges led to a sense of relief for the families of the teenage girls, as well as the public, who'd been watching the case very closely. But there were still many unanswered questions. In particular, what exactly happened to the girls? Were they held captive for days or weeks before being killed? Also, what was Carla Homolka's involvement? She was charged with manslaughter, but police were releasing no details about the case, only saying the crimes they were dealing with were horrible. Carla Homolka was the first to stand trial. It took place in the summer of 1993, five months after Bernardo's arrest. And instead of providing answers, well, it only added to the mystery. Following a request from the Crown Attorney, the judge overseeing the case imposed a temporary and partial publication ban on her legal proceedings. The Crown had argued the ban was necessary to make sure Bernardo got a fair trial. What it meant was Canadian reporters could attend the trial, but they could not share any information that related to the case against Paul Bernardo. And the ban would stay in place until after Bernardo's trial was over. As you can imagine, the publication ban didn't sit well with the media. A lawyer for the Toronto Star newspaper argued that the public has a constitutional right to hear the case against Homolka and the deal she struck with the Crown. To make sure information didn't leak out in any other way, the public was also banned from attending the trial. And so was the U.S. media, who had taken interest in the sensational Canadian case and weren't obligated to follow the court's ruling on the publication ban. Buffalo TV reporter Dick Lasinski said he was shocked by the ruling.
1: But uh, Canadians uh, tend to be more accepting of a uh, uh, publication ban or a broadcast ban. It, it doesn't bother them. It's part of the natural way of doing business, the natural order of things. You try to do that in the United States, uh, you would have a, a lot of people yelling loud and long, and it just uh, uh, it wouldn't get by the first, uh, first appeal in court. Because, because of the U.S. Constitution and freedom of the press and freedom of speech, uh, there's virtually no way anything like that could get by.
0: Carla Homolka's trial got underway on July 5th, 1993. And despite the judge's ruling, about 60 people still lined up outside the courthouse, hoping to be let inside to witness the proceedings. Others who were angry with the decision protested with signs that read things like, hear no justice, see no justice. Some of those people outside the courthouse lived in the St. Catharines area where Kristen French was abducted and they were tired of not knowing what had really happened. So many rumors and stories had been circulating, and they thought the truth would finally put an end to the nightmare so the community could begin to heal and move on. But as promised, only select reporters, a few police officers, and the families of Carla Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French were allowed inside the courtroom for the trial, which ended up being very short. That's because Homolka pleaded guilty to two counts of manslaughter. Dressed in a navy blue blazer, 23-year-old Homolka stared straight ahead, appearing composed and attentive while a two-page indictment that included details of the horrible crimes was read out to the court. Family members of Leslie and Kristen wiped away tears as they heard the words that confirmed Homolka was responsible for the deaths of their daughters. 54 reporters were in the room, writing down disturbing facts of the case, but none of it was reported in the media. And I should note, I didn't attend Hamolka's trial, but from what I heard from other reporters that did, the details of the case, along with the emotional victim impact statements made by the mothers of Leslie and Kristen, brought many seasoned journalists in the courtroom to tears. Hamolka sat impassively as the mothers spoke of their devastation. Again, none of the details of the victim impact statements could be made public. They were sealed indefinitely by the judge. What the media could tell the public was that Hamulka was sentenced to 12 years in jail for her role in the killings. In handing down the sentence, Justice Frank Kovacs said, While the slayings were the worst of crimes, Hamulka is not the worst offender and doesn't deserve the maximum penalty. Hamulka could have received a life sentence for her part in the killings, but instead, because of the agreement with the Crown that she would testify against her husband, she received just 12 years in prison. The public's outrage over the sentence was immediate and became even worse when more details of the crimes were released two years later, when the trial of Hamulka's estranged husband finally got underway. Paul Bernardo's trial started on May 1st, 1995, more than two years after his arrest. And media coverage of the case had not died down in any way. The speculation about what had really happened to Leslie and Kristen continued. In fact, the publication ban on Carla Homolka's trial seemed to have the reverse effect. It fanned the fire and generated even more interest in the case. By now, the public's appetite for details about Bernardo and his crimes was enormous. Stories, rumors, and speculation spread like an unchecked virus, person to person, and in online chat rooms on the newly created internet. But what was imagined on and offline did not even touch the true horrors that would soon be revealed at trial. There was talk of videotapes, torture, sex slaves but the publication ban put in place at Carla Homolka's trial had mostly held in Canada, despite attempts by some to get to the bottom of the story. Media outlets in the U.S. who weren't obligated to abide by the ban shared leaked information about the case. When the Buffalo Times printed some details of the crimes, people tried to smuggle copies of the newspaper across the U.S. border into Canada. Some were successful— but others had the paper confiscated by Border Patrol agents. The Fox tabloid TV show, A Current Affair, as well as CNN, also ran stories that contained restricted information. In response, their transmissions were blocked by Canadian cable companies, which led to people scrambling to watch them on satellite stations. The appetite for any information was so insatiable that a retired Ontario police officer named Gordon Dom, who was opposed to the ban made it his mission to distribute copies of American and British newspaper articles that contained ban details. He was eventually charged and convicted of violating the ban. Because of this intense public fascination and media coverage, Bernardo's trial was moved from St. Catharines, Ontario, where the killings took place, to downtown Toronto with the hope that the court would be more likely to find unbiased jury members. From the very beginning, the trial was a media circus. I was among about 100 journalists who showed up for day one of jury selection, a process that is normally not even covered in the news. The whole process of selecting the jury was much faster than expected. It took just 225 potential jurors and five days to select the jury panel for the murder trial, which was much shorter than the jury selection for the O.J. Simpson trial, which took about two weeks. The OJ trial was happening in Los Angeles at the exact same time as the Bernardo trial. In fact, the Bernardo trial was often called Canada's OJ trial. But there were many differences. For example, the OJ jurors were sequestered for eight and a half months. The Bernardo jurors, on the other hand, were not sequestered and were free to go home at night. And they could come and go during court breaks as they pleased. Something that amazed juror Eric Broadhurst. The fact that we rode those escalators
1: down every day with you in front of us and you behind us, and we ended up in the same restaurants around here for lunch, and no one ever came up to me and I think all the others and bugged us. And that was a two-way respect. We really recognized that and we appreciated it. That was really great of you folks. And I pity those poor people. There's been so many comparisons to um, the O.J. Simpson trial, and I bleed for those jurors who are sequestered.
0: By the time Paul Bernardo's trial began, society had undergone a major change, thanks to the case against O.J. Simpson, which was playing out live on television sets across North America in 1995. The gavel-to-gavel coverage of the so-called trial of the century was watched by millions of viewers and blurred the lines between entertainment and news like never before. Bernardo was not a celebrity like Simpson, and his case, which was considered Canada's trial of the century, was not televised, but it was a media spectacle nonetheless. Bernardo's crimes and trial captured the media and public's attention like no other case before. It might have been the timing... The internet was available, but had not yet taken over society completely, making it harder to obtain information about the case. It might have been the teenage victims and the rumored videotapes made of their final living moments. It might have been the seemingly perfect young couple accused of the murders. Or it might have been all of these things combined. Whatever the reason, it meant curious members of the public lined up for a seat inside courtroom 61 at the University Avenue Courthouse in Toronto throughout Bernardo's four-month trial, while others devoured the daily news coverage in newspapers and on television and radio. But Bernardo's defense lawyer, John Rosen, warned people not to turn his client into a monster.
2: He is another human being, just like the rest of us. And as I've said many times before, uh, he's not perfect, and he has faults—greater faults than other people. He—he uh, he may have an illness. I don't know. Uh, but he, the, the fact of the matter is, he's just another person. Don't make him out to be anything other than that. Uh, you know, where but for the grace of God may go you or I. So, uh, so just remember that.
0: On the first day of Bernardo's murder trial, curious onlookers began lining up at 4 a.m. so they could get one of the 118 public seats available inside the courtroom. By 9 a.m., all of the seats were taken with a mix of young and old, men and women, students, professionals, and retirees. I was among the 60 reporters who filled the media section in the courtroom— While about 30 family members and their supporters, along with officials from the Attorney General's office and police officers, took the remaining seats. On the first day, Debbie and Dan Mahaffey, the parents of Leslie, took their seats in the front row, while Donna and Doug French, the parents of Kristen French, sat directly behind them in the second row. The courtroom went completely silent when Bernardo was let in for the first time. It looked like he had recently received a haircut and he was wearing a black suit, white shirt, and a green patterned tie. From where I was sitting, I noticed the father of Kristen French, Doug French, was straining in his seat to get a look at the man accused of killing his young daughter. Overseeing the trial was Justice Patrick Lesage, who in 1995 had been a judge for 20 years already and was well-respected in legal circles. It was said he ran his court with an iron fist in a velvet glove. After dealing with some housekeeping issues, Crown Attorney Ray Houlihan stood up at the podium, just steps away from the jury box, and began his opening statement. Houlihan was low-key and reserved, with a dry, methodical style, but a bulldog nonetheless. Over the next four hours, he laid out, in a slow, monotonous voice, a harrowing description of the girl's time in captivity and their ultimate deaths. After years of an information drought, the floodgates were open. Because there were no cameras, it was up to me and the other reporters covering the case to bear witness to the horrific details that would be revealed over the next four months. And it was up to us to decide which facts the public needed to know and which facts were too graphic to share. There were certain things that I heard that I would never repeat, not in public or private, not then or now. The opening statement outlines the evidence the Crown plans to present during the trial. And in this case, it was the first time the public heard the Crown's theory about how Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French were kidnapped and killed by Bernardo. Houlihan told the court that it was the Crown's belief that Bernardo killed both Leslie and Kristen by strangling them with a black electrical cord. He said that Hamolka was present when both girls were killed And the jury would hear evidence from Homolka herself that she was an accomplice to her husband, but it was Bernardo who actually physically caused the deaths. And Houlihan confirmed that the rumors were true. There were videotapes. In a relentless monotone, the prosecutor outlined in graphic detail the contents of six tapes made by Bernardo and his wife. Houlihan said the tapes do not show the actual killings, but they help identify who caused the death of the victims. He said the tapes were worth a million words. He also made it clear that the Crown believed Hamolka was an unwilling participant in the crimes, laying the groundwork for the Crown's theory that Hamolka was a battered woman forced to take part after years of mental and physical abuse. This was also the first time the public heard that Bernardo and Hamolka were involved in the death of 15-year-old Tammy Hamolka. Carla's little sister. Throughout the Crown's opening statement, the families of Leslie and Kristen sat and listened to the horrific crimes committed on their daughters. They leaned against each other and cried. Husbands put their arms around wives. Now it was all out there. Everyone knew what had happened to their daughters. Tim Danson, the lawyer for the victim's families, spoke to the media after the opening statement with a very strong message.
1: Much of... Or probably everything that you have heard today in court was uh, evidence that uh, you have not been able to report on uh, because of the publication ban. Obviously, there's no publication ban on anything that you're now hearing. And I guess from my client's perspective, uh, having heard it and, and, and recognizing uh, really the detail uh, uh, of what will happen in this trial,
0: uh, that uh, maybe the media will be a little more sensitive, maybe more appropriately your bosses will be more sensitive to my client's concerns. and. Uh, take positions that are more sensitive to, um, to their concerns. There's a big difference between informing the public
1: and, uh, and, and, and getting into uh, matters that uh, just aren't necessary.
0: Over the next three and a half months, the Crown called 84 witnesses. The jury heard from the people who last saw Leslie and Kristen alive, from the people who found their bodies, from police officers who investigated the murders and searched Bernardo's house, and from forensic experts who analyzed what was found there. But the Crown's case was essentially built around two major pillars, the videotaped evidence and the testimony from Carla Homolka. In pretrial hearings, the Crown and the families of Leslie and Kristen fought hard to keep the public from viewing the tapes, while the media and defense argued they should be played in open court. In the end, Justice Patrick Lesage handed down a compromise ruling. The media and public could remain in court while the videos were played for the jury, but they would only be able to hear the tapes, not watch them. On the day the jury began the grim task of viewing graphic videotaped evidence, the eight men and four women watched the videos on two large monitors positioned directly in front of them. The lawyers and judge had their own monitors at each of their desks that only they could see. And Bernardo had a small monitor inside the prisoner's box So he could also watch the videos as they were presented to the court. The monitors at the front of the courtroom facing the public gallery were turned off. Before the first tape was played, the judge explained to the jury that they would watch each video three times because they contained images that the jurors would not be accustomed to. The first time would be a normal viewing. The second time, jurors would be given an audio transcript so that they could follow what was being said. And during the third time, the Crown would stop the tape and highlight certain aspects with the assistance of Niagara Regional Police Sergeant Gary Bolio. Justice Lesage, who throughout the trial was kind and gentle with the jury, told them if at any time they would like a break, they were to simply raise a hand or call out, and he said they shouldn't feel bad or embarrassed. When the first tape was played, the courtroom was packed with 60 members of the media and about 120 spectators who began lining up at 4.30 that morning to get a seat inside the court. The video was labeled, Tammy, Carla, and me. And as the title suggests, involved Carla Homolka's 15-year-old sister. The audio on the tape was turned up quite loud. But for the public and reporters in the gallery, it was still hard to figure out what was happening. There was just a lot of whispering and heavy breathing. For the jury, it was the first look at what Bernardo and Hamulka were capable of. And I should warn you, what I'm about to describe is very graphic. The video showed the pair sexually assaulting Hamulka's little sister shortly before she died. The assault took place on December 23, 1990, in the basement of the Hamolka family home in St. Catharines, while Hamulka's parents and sister Lori were upstairs sleeping. Earlier that evening, Bernardo had secretly slipped sleeping pills into Tammy's drink. And later, when she passed out, Bernardo and Hamolka sexually assaulted the unconscious girl, filming the entire thing. During the attack, Carla Homolka held a cloth soaked in halothane, which is a liquid anesthetic, over Tammy's face to keep her unconscious. The attack ended when Tammy started to vomit and choke. Bernardo and Homolka hid the video camera and the halothane and called 911. Tammy died the next day in hospital. As the video played, at least one female juror put her hand over her mouth as she watched the attack on Tammy. Other jurors just stared straight ahead and showed little reaction. Bernardo watched the tape from inside the prisoner's box with an arm draped casually over the back of his chair. At the end of the day, I spoke to some spectators to find out why they came to court, including this 18-year-old who was clearly shaken by the whole experience.
2: Why did you come down? It was curiosity. It was just, no one knew anything for two years, and we wanted to, to know what was going on, I guess. And how do you feel now that you know what's going on? I feel horrible. <laughs> very scared. Like, I don't. It just makes you open your eyes a lot and know what's out there, because he's a normal guy from a normal small town, and I don't know, it's scary. You look very upset. Uh, look very upset? Yeah. I think just seeing him was the worst. I couldn't... It was like seeing him in front of me, smiling and laughing was the scariest thing.
0: During the trial, jurors also watched an assault on another unnamed teenager. The shocking video showed Bernardo and Hamolka sexually assaulting an unconscious young girl whose name was protected by the court. She was referred to during the trial as Jane Doe. And like Tammy Hamolka, she had been drugged and victimized by the couple. But unlike Tammy... She survived. Jane Doe only became aware of the attack after police viewed the videos. Next, the jurors began watching the series of videos depicting the 24 hours that 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey was held captive in the couple's Port Dalhousie home. Paul Bernardo again watched the video from his seat inside the prisoner's box. and He seemed to bounce a little in his seat while he was viewing the tape. Again, the media and spectators in the court's public gallery couldn't see the videos, but we could listen. We heard Leslie's voice come through the speakers. It felt like a jolt. She sounded so young, confused, embarrassed, and scared. The first segment was filmed shortly after Leslie was kidnapped by Bernardo. On the tape, he was first heard leading her into the dining room, where he told her to sit down. Then Bernardo directs Leslie down the hall to the bathroom, and guides her to sit on the toilet. Leslie says, oh my God, when she realizes that Bernardo was filming her while she was going to the bathroom. As with all of the videotapes, this one was played three times. On the third time through, the tape was paused at various points, so Sergeant Bolio could point out certain things on the video. In this case, he pointed out that Leslie was blindfolded with a red shirt that was tied around her head. Even though we could only hear the tapes, Sergeant Bolio's descriptions made it easy to visualize what was happening on the video. After several video segments were played, Leslie's mother walked into the courtroom. One of the court officers took notice and stood up, anticipating what might happen next. But Debbie Mahaffey simply sat down in the front row along with the two women who were with her. This segment was the longest, over 25 minutes in length, and took place in the master bedroom of 57 Bayview Drive. Carla Homolka filmed this video and took part in the attack on Leslie, but didn't say a word, remaining silent throughout. A radio was playing loudly in the background and often drowned out the dialogue. The court was filled with the sound of familiar rock songs, including Little Bones by the Tragically Hip. To this day, I cannot hear that song without thinking of Leslie Mahaffey and the indignities that she suffered before her death. Leslie's mom, Debbie, sat with her head down, her hand over her heart, and her eyes closed. She quietly dabbed away tears. I can only imagine that she put herself through such a painful experience so that her daughter would not be alone as the tapes were being played in a courtroom full of strangers. As the tape continued, Bernardo offered Leslie a glass of champagne, which the Crown says contains sleeping pills. He then asked Leslie to state her name and date of birth. In a slurred voice, Leslie said two times, Leslie Erin Mahaffey, July 6, 1976. As the video played, Bernardo watched from his seat inside the prisoner's box and made notes. At times, he put on the headphones to hear the dialogue better. Some members of the public gallery left, but many stayed, including Leslie's mom. After a break, she moved to a seat in the last row of the courtroom, sitting directly behind me. The last segment involving Leslie was two minutes and 41 seconds long. And the Crown said, Bernardo killed her shortly after it was filmed. Once again, what I'm about to describe is incredibly graphic. Leslie is heard saying, I just want to do what you want. Bernardo replies, good girl. Then, screams filled the hushed courtroom as Leslie begs for her life, begging to see her family, her little brother, her friends. Everyone in the courtroom froze, everyone except Leslie's mom. In the seat behind me, she collapsed into the arms of one of the women with her, letting out a guttural, heart wrenching cry. It was a moan of agony that no human should ever have to feel. For years after I covered the trial, people would ask me what it was like. They would ask if it was hard to be in court. This is what I remember. This is what finally made me cry and kept me awake at night. The sound of a mother losing her child. Just as Patrick Lesage decided this tape did not need to be played three times, once was enough— He ended court early and sent everyone home for the weekend. When court resumed on Monday, June 5th, the jurors began watching videos that depicted the 72 hours that Kristen French was held captive by Bernardo and Hamolka. She was kidnapped on the Thursday before Good Friday in April 1992, 10 months after Leslie Mahaffey had been kidnapped and killed. Kristen's family chose to stay away while the tapes were played, But over 200 members of the public lined up as early as 4 a.m. in an effort to get seats inside the court. Some people had sleeping bags, chairs, and coffee with them while they waited for the court to open. Once again, what jurors saw was extremely disturbing. They shifted uncomfortably in their seats while the videos of Kristen played. Some shielded their eyes during the more graphic scenes. In all, the jurors watched over 70 minutes of tapes broken up into 10 segments, showing a range of indignities and assaults being committed by Bernardo and Hamolka against Kristen. Again, Bernardo watched the video calmly from his seat inside the prisoner's box. After playing one segment, the Crown explained to the jury that Bernardo was getting angry at Kristen because she wasn't performing the way he wanted her to. The jury watched as Kristen was punished for calling Bernardo a bastard. Then she was heard crying and saying, I'm really sorry, I know I shouldn't have done it. But then in another small act of defiance, Kristen said, I don't know how your wife can stand you. That statement enraged Bernardo. One juror jolted in his seat at the sounds of Kristen crying out in pain while other jurors looked away and read their transcripts. In the public gallery, the people who had lined up to listen to this reacted in different ways. Some slumped in their seats, others leaned on each other, and a few covered their faces. Over and over, Kristen desperately said sorry. After a long pause, Bernardo finally said, just shut up, okay? Then, like a director, he said camera, and the tape was turned off. The Crown told the court that about an hour after the tape was stopped... Bernardo strangled Kristen with a length of cord. Carla Homolka took the stand on June 15th, six weeks into the trial. It was the first time she and her ex husband had seen each other in over two years, since January 1993, when Homolka left Bernardo. She was transferred from the Kingston Penitentiary for Women to a jail cell in Toronto so that she could testify against her ex husband. Again, over 300 people camped out all night at the courthouse, hoping to get a seat inside. Hamulka's parents, along with her sister Lori, were also in the gallery when the petite 25-year-old blonde took the stand dressed in a prim suit jacket and skirt. The judge had to tell spectators in the back of the gallery to sit down when they stood up to catch a glimpse of her as she came in. Hamolka avoided eye contact with Bernardo until later when the Crown asked her to point him out. The Crown began by asking his star witness questions that summarized the crimes. In a soft voice, Hamolka admitted that she had sexually assaulted Leslie and Kristen and helped confine them, but she said it was Bernardo who did the killing. She said Bernardo strangled the girls with a black electrical cord in the master bedroom of their home and that she watched as he did. Homolka told repeated stories of how he beat her and forced her to perform sex acts against her will. Every time the Crown asked her why she stayed, she said because she loved Bernardo and she hoped things would get better. She described how Bernardo badgered her for months to let him sleep with other women, including her 14-year-old sister Tammy. Bernardo usually sat pretty much motionless as he listened to his ex-wife— but he finally cracked during this part of her testimony. At one point, his jaw dropped open and his eyes popped wide. Then he tilted his head back and laughed. Hamolka said she finally agreed to let Bernardo have sex with her sister because she thought it would be a one-time thing. Wiping away tears, Hamolka described the night of the attack and explained that Bernardo accused her of wrecking the recording by complaining that a certain sex act was disgusting. She said that Bernardo severely beat her because of it, and that's why she always looked happy on the sex assault videos of Leslie and Kristen. Hamulka testified that after Tammy died, she felt totally trapped. She had to do whatever Bernardo said because he was holding this horrible secret over her head. She said if she ever complained, Bernardo would threaten to show her family the tape of Tammy's sexual assault. In all, the Crown prosecutor questioned Homolka for eight and a half days. Because the murders of Kristen and Leslie weren't captured on tape, Homolka's testimony was the only evidence the Crown had that Bernardo actually committed the murders. So when it came time for the defense to cross-examine Homolka, Bernardo's lawyer, John Rosen, wanted to convince the jury that Homolka was not a credible witness. If he could prove Homolka was lying about other things, she could also be lying that Bernardo did the killings. When Rosen began his cross of Homolka, it took less than five minutes to shake her up. Homolka choked back tears when he asked her to identify photos of her dead sister Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen. But Homolka regained her composure quickly and over the next several days sparred with Rosen, who attempted to paint Homolka as someone who enjoyed kinky sex. Was an equal partner to Bernardo. Rosen accused Hamolka of being jealous of Leslie because Bernardo had described her as pretty and cool. Hamolka answered, Absolutely not, but she did admit that she was annoyed that Bernardo used expensive champagne glasses with Leslie while Hamolka was out walking the dog. Rosen claimed that Bernardo wanted to dump the drugged and blindfolded teenager back in Burlington because she had no idea where she was assaulted. But Rosen claimed that while Bernardo went to get the car ready, Hamolka decided to kill Leslie by suffocating her with a pillow. Hamolka called that a complete lie. He also suggested that Kristen French killed herself by accident while Bernardo was out of the house getting fast food. He accused Hamolka of beating Kristen with a rubber mallet when the teen tried to escape. He said a cord was tied from Kristen's neck to a hope chest, and during the struggle, she strangled herself. Again, Hamolka said Rosen's theory was a total lie. During the lengthy cross-examination, both Hamolka and Rosen seemed to lose patience with each other, arguing over many issues, which was fine by Rosen. Oh, the
2: tougher she was, the better I liked it. Uh, because, <laughs> because the Crown presented her as this poor, battered victim. And she came across as anything but, so uh, it was great.
0: Before wrapping up his case, Crown Attorney Ray Houlihan called a pair of psychologists to the stand. They were experts on the battered women's syndrome. The Crown was trying to establish that Homolka's actions could be explained by the fact that she was physically and mentally abused by Bernardo and suffered from post-traumatic stress following the death of her sister. This suggestion was hard to believe, especially after she was shown on the videotaped sexual assaults as what looked like a willing participant who appeared to be enjoying herself. When the Crown rested on August 14th, defense lawyer John Rosen announced he would begin presenting the defense's case the next day by calling Paul Bernardo to the stand. There had been speculation that Bernardo might elect to testify, but up until that moment, no one knew for sure what strategy Rosen and his client might take. Before I jump into the defense's case, let's talk about John Rosen for a bit. Throughout the trial, the defense lawyer made himself readily available to the media and held briefings almost every day outside the courthouse. His relationship with reporters was quite friendly and relaxed, at times even jovial. On the other hand, the Crown Prosecutor Ray Houlihan did not speak to the media until after a verdict was reached, which is common practice for Canadian prosecutors. At the time of the trial, John Rosen was 50 years old. And before the Bernardo case, he had represented over 100 accused killers over a 25-year career. During the Bernardo trial, Rosen was constantly asked how he could defend an accused criminal like Paul Bernardo.
2: Well, I I defend uh, every client to the best of my ability. Uh, I give it more than 100 percent and... He's no different. Uh, I do the best for each client that I represent. Um, That's my duty. That's what I swore to do when I uh, took the oath to become a officer of the court and uh, accept the defense briefs. And that's what I do.
1: Mr. Rosen, his family.
2: And one question at a time. Um, No, I. This is not the most gruesome case I've ever done. Um, This is a a very easy client to deal with. Um, I've had much more difficult clients to deal with. Uh, So from from the client perspective, uh, this has been a fairly easy case to to do. Um, A difficult case from a factual perspective because of the, the evidence that we had to deal with.
0: Before Bernardo took the stand, Rosen made a short opening statement, telling the jury the only issue to be determined was who actually killed Leslie and Kristen. He said a lot of issues have already been resolved. All you have to do is push play on the videotape machine and see the whole case. Then, at the end of his brief opening address, in a dramatic flurry, Rosen turned to the jury box and said, Members of the jury, I call to the stand Paul Bernardo. Dressed in a navy suit with a crisp white shirt and floral tie, Bernardo walked to the witness box, looking calm and confident. His blonde hair was neatly trimmed, and as he walked past the jury box, he looked directly at the eight men and four women who would decide his fate. Before Rosen began questioning Bernardo, the families of his victims stood and left the courtroom en masse, escorted by police officers. Rosen jumped right in. First, he played a video of Bernardo assaulting Leslie. Rosen said to Bernardo, there's no doubt that was you assaulting Leslie. In a strong voice, Bernardo said, yes, sir. Then Rosen said, did you strangle Leslie with a black electrical cord? Bernardo said, no, sir. Then Rosen played a video showing Bernardo assaulting Kristen. Carla Homolka's mom and sister were in the court, and they hunched over in their seats and plugged their ears so they couldn't hear Kristen screaming. Again, Rosen asked Bernardo if that was him assaulting Kristen. Bernardo said, yes, sir. Then Rosen asked, did you strangle her? He said, no, sir. At this point, Bernardo turned directly to the jury. Throwing his arms wide open, he said, People, I've done some really terrible things, and I've caused a lot of sadness and sorrow to people. And I'm really sorry for that, and I know I deserve to be punished. But I didn't kill these girls. Very few accused serial killers take the stand in their own defense. As a matter of fact, very few go to trial. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they often plead guilty or opt instead to accept a plea agreement to avoid the death penalty in jurisdictions where it exists. The Bernardo trial was different. The jury and public heard firsthand from the man accused in a series of heinous crimes, allowing a rare glimpse inside the dark mind of a killer. On that first day of questioning, Bernardo remained standing in the witness box. He altered from looking straight ahead or turning to look at the jury, at times gesturing wildly with his hands. From where I was sitting, he seemed to me to be almost manic, like he was on super high alert. His answers were carefully worded, and he sounded practiced. When defense lawyer John Rosen asked Bernardo what he was thinking at the time he kidnapped Leslie Mahaffey, he testified that he thought she was attractive and she would be a nice girl to bring home to have sex with him and his wife, Carla. When Rosen asked why he would abduct a girl for three-way sex, Bernardo replied, That's the kind of sex life we lived. Bernardo testified that after he'd had enough of Leslie, he planned to drug her and take her home. When he left to get ready, Leslie was asleep on a pillow on the floor of his master bedroom. Homolka was in the room with her. Bernardo said when he came back, Leslie was dead. As for Kristen French, Bernardo said he left his wife alone with her while he went out to get food. Because Kristen was bigger than Homolka, he feared she could overpower her and escape. So he bound Kristen with handcuffs and twine and then tied a cord around her neck and attached it to a wood beam in the closet. Bernardo actually appeared to choke back tears as he described what happened next. He said when he returned, Homolka was crying and said Kristen tried to escape. Bernardo said he ran upstairs and found Kristen with the cord around her neck, attached to a hope chest, laying face down with her arms handcuffed behind her and her legs unbound. In his final question to his client, defense lawyer John Rosen asked Bernardo if he thought he was a changed man since his arrest. Bernardo replied, when I look back at how our sex fantasies hurt so many people, I can't believe I was that same person. Next, it was the Crown Attorney's turn to cross-examine Bernardo, and once again, it's disturbing. Ray Houlihan wasted no time. He started by playing the videotape of Kristen French being assaulted. He froze a frame from the video and said to Bernardo, you see that face in the video? Yes, replied Bernardo. It's your face, isn't it? Said Houlihan, raising his voice. Yes, said Bernardo. And you're furious, aren't you? Said Houlihan. Yes, said Bernardo. This is your face just after you punched Kristen French, asked Houlihan. Yes, said Bernardo. That's the face of a killer, isn't it? Asked Houlihan. No, it isn't, sir," said Bernardo calmly. Next, Houlihan showed Bernardo smiling. A few minutes later, in the video, Houlihan said, "That's the smile of a master controller, a master of deception, the face of someone who is acting just like you are right now." "I was smiling, sir," Bernardo replied politely. Houlihan continued his questioning of Bernardo, often appearing angry and raising his voice. In response, Bernardo was confident and at times mocking or sarcastic. At one point, the Crown demanded Bernardo answer his questions properly. But the judge interjected and said Bernardo could answer the questions the way he wanted to. By Bernardo's fifth day on the stand, his demeanor changed drastically. He was no longer animated. His voice was much softer, and he lost much of the sarcastic and impatient tone he took with the Crown the week before. His face was expressionless, and very rarely did he look at the jury anymore. He seemed like a different person almost, completely detached. Outside court, I asked defense lawyer John Rosen why his client's demeanor changed.
2: Well, I think it's like everybody else. You have good days and bad days, and I think he was uh, tired, um, I think he. Uh, uh, I, I think it took a lot of courage on his part uh, to agree to testify, to get up in a public courtroom with a lot of media attention, to admit the the wrongdoings that he admitted to, uh, to admit the fact that he had a, a, a that he has a problem with sexual uh, matters, uh, and will need psychiatric treatment. I think for the average person to do that. Even in the privacy of a psychiatrist's office is is difficult. Imagine having to do it in public and do it over a six-day period while being uh, grilled by a 25-year veteran uh, prosecutor.
0: Crown attorney Ray Houlihan wrapped up his cross-examination of Bernardo the next day by suggesting a defiant Kristen French insulted Bernardo in a last courageous act that was recorded on videotape just before she was killed. Kristen's last words on the tape were, I don't know how your wife can stand being around you. Houlihan asked Bernardo, Kristen's last words are an insult. Bernardo said, yeah, it's some sort of an insult. With that, Houlihan closed his notebook and said thank you and sat down. Then after a very brief re-examination by the defense, John Rosen turned to the judge and said the defense elects to call no further evidence. After 53 days of testimony from 86 witnesses, the trial was finally over. Following closing arguments and some final instructions from the judge, jurors were sent away to decide the fate of Paul Bernardo. Less than eight hours later, just before noon on September 1st, 1995, they announced a verdict had been reached. Paul Bernardo was led into court in handcuffs, wearing a teal-green suit, white shirt, and floral tie. He whispered briefly with his lawyers and appeared tense as the jurors filed into the courtroom. Bernardo stood up, flanked by his two lawyers, and all three turned to the foreman. The court registrar addressed the jury. On count one of the indictment, first-degree murder in the death of Leslie Mahaffey, how do you find? Guilty, the foreman said in a quiet voice. Bernardo looked on, ashen-faced and bleary-eyed. On count two of the indictment, first-degree murder in the death of Kristen French, how do you find, asked the court registrar. Guilty, said the foreman. The same verdict seven more times on the remaining charges. Guilty of two counts of kidnapping, guilty of two counts of confinement, guilty of two counts of aggravated sexual assault, and guilty of dismembering the body of Leslie Mahaffey. The judge then asked Bernardo to stand. He said, Mr. Bernardo, on count one, you are sentenced to life imprisonment with no eligibility of parole for 25 years. Then he said, on count two, you are sentenced to life imprisonment with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. Bernardo quietly turned, putting his hands behind his back so a guard could put his handcuffs back on. He was led out a side door without uttering a single word. Outside the courthouse, it was absolute pandemonium. Dozens of reporters and cameramen jammed the sidewalk outside the main doors, waiting for comment from the families of the victims. The first to emerge was Dan Mahaffey, Leslie's father. I was in the crush of reporters, pushing and shoving for position, holding up my cell phone so the radio station I worked for could go live on the air as an emotional Mr. Mahaffey read a written statement that he held with shaking hands. This
1: is our statement, our few comments.
0: Put the tape down. We
1: feel it would be inappropriate and impossible to speak how we feel at this moment. The intensity of the overwhelming pain and strong emotions have once again swept us and rendering us it impossible for us to adequately talk about the verdict, the death of Leslie and what this moment really means to us. Only the trial is over. Leslie is still not coming home.
0: Mr. Mahaffey then turned and embraced his wife, Debbie, and young son, Ryan. Next, Doug French, Kristen's father, wearing a t-shirt that read, In Memory of Kristen, waded through the crowd. He pulled out a crumpled piece of paper from his pocket and spoke on behalf of his wife, Donna, and son, Darren.
1: It's been over three years since our daughter was taken from us. A difficult and painful time. Finally today, with the guilty verdict, especially the guilty verdict for first-degree murder of our daughter, there is some sort of closure. Well, it can't return our daughter to us. We have the satisfaction of seeing this perpetrator punished. Finally, and as always, our final words for our daughter. With the trial over, Christy, you can't be hurt anymore. We love you.
0: When Crown Prosecutor Ray Houlihan emerged from the courthouse, reporters were whipped into an absolute frenzy. Until now, Houlihan had not spoken a word to the media about his case.
1: While here! Over here. Over here. Over here. Well, the jury has rendered its verdict, of course. And uh, trial by jury is a cornerstone uh, of our democratic order and, of course, of our system of justice in this province. Being tried by... Uh, a jury of one's peers is still the best system in the world. This jury, given the nature of uh, some of the videotapes that they had to view, have endured uh, a hardship that probably no other jury in uh, Canadian history, legal history, has ever been faced with. Notwithstanding that, uh, they uh, consistently uh, continued to perform their duty Day after day, until the end of the trial, and uh, they are to be commended for that.
0: When defense lawyer John Rosen faced the media, he would only say that his client was disappointed by the verdict. By Canadian law at the time, Bernardo's two life sentences would be served concurrently for a total of 25 years in prison. In the weeks following the guilty verdict, the Crown announced it would apply to have Bernardo declared a dangerous offender. The designation is the most restrictive label that can be attached to a Canadian criminal, and it means an indefinite jail term. The dangerous offender designation was created in 1977. And between 1977 and 1995, 146 criminals had been designated a dangerous offender. Of those, only four had ever been paroled and released from prison. Bernardo was still facing manslaughter charges in connection with the death of Tammy Hamolka, and over 60 other charges related to the Scarborough rape case. The Crown's plan was to eliminate the need for all future trials by including all of the outstanding charges in the dangerous offender application. Initially, Bernardo's lawyer said he would fight the designation. Then on November 3rd, 1995, Bernardo's lawyer announced his client would plead guilty to the outstanding charges and he would not fight the dangerous offender application. Bernardo became the first person in Canadian history to consent to the designation. During the three-hour court appearance, Bernardo admitted to raping 13 of 15 women who were attacked in Scarborough between 1987 and 1990. He also admitted to the drugging and sexual assault of Jane Doe. And he admitted guilt in the manslaughter of his ex wife's younger sister, Tammy Hamolka. On this day, the families of his murder victims were finally given a chance to share their grief and anguish with the court. Donna French, Kristen's mother, read a prepared statement in which she tearfully described how she could still remember holding her baby daughter in her arms and kissing her head and how she ached to hold that daughter again. Leslie's mom, Debbie Mahaffey, played a videotape for the court. It included footage of Leslie with her family and a message from the Mahaffys to Bernardo. You thought you defeated Leslie, but Leslie defeated you. Then Leslie's little brother, Ryan, took the stand. The 11-year-old looked directly at Bernardo when he said his family was happy until Bernardo took his sister away. He began to sob, and the judge said it was okay for his mom to come up with him. But Ryan told his mom he was okay and continued on. He said just before his sister was abducted, she was the most beautiful she had ever been, and this is how he will always remember her. Also in court that day were many of the young women Bernardo brutally raped during his three-year reign of terror in Scarborough. They filled up the first three rows of the courtroom. And part of the deal worked out behind closed doors meant that Bernardo would plead guilty, but he didn't want to hear from his victims. So they were told to write out their statements and submit them to the court. They weren't allowed to address their attacker. But at the last minute, Justice Patrick Lesage decided to read out the statements. They told a story of young women who were afraid to go outside, who were afraid of the dark, who had attempted suicide. They felt robbed of their lives. Just as Patrick Lasage ended by saying to the women, society sometimes is cruel in its treatment of rape victims, making many feel guilty themselves. He said to the women, quote, Be proud of the way you have conducted yourselves. Don't let this man take away your freedom. Then Lasage looked at Bernardo and declared, You are a dangerous offender. The likelihood of you being treated is remote in the extreme. You are a sexually sadistic psychopath. The behavioral restraint you need is jail, and in my view, you require it for the rest of your life. Then Bernardo rose to have his say. This brought jeers from the victims sitting behind him. He was dressed in an olive suit with his hair shaved close at the back and the sides. In a calm voice, he explained he decided to end his legal fight to put to rest the pain and suffering everyone was going through. He apologized to the sexual assault victims in the courtroom and to the families of Leslie and Kristen. He said, quote, I'm really sorry for everything that happened to your daughters. I maintain my innocence on the murders because I did not murder them. He was then led out of the courtroom in shackles. As he went, one of the rape victims yelled out, Rotten hell. Another said, remember, Paul, we did it to you this time. We won the war. In the months and years since the trial, attempts have been made to erase the memory of the horrible crimes committed by Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. On December 5, 1995, about 50 people volunteered to be part of a demo team that tore down the house where Leslie and Kristen were murdered. Over 100 people gathered at dawn to watch the demolition, including Leslie Mahaffey's mom, who told a reporter she wanted to bring a sledgehammer and take part in the demo, but wasn't allowed. In 2001, after all of Bernardo's appeal options were exhausted, the videotaped evidence was incinerated as the families of the girls watched. One by one, the tapes were burned, along with pictures and other files from the trial. Debbie Mahaffey and Donna French said they hoped their daughters could finally find some peace. On July 4th, 2005, Carla Hamolka was released from prison after serving her entire 12-year sentence. She later married her lawyer's brother and had three children of her own. The family moved to the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe for a time, but in recent years, they've returned to Canada to live in Quebec. Bernardo, meanwhile, remains in solitary confinement at Millhaven Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario. His cell is three paces long and an arms with the cross. He spends about 23 hours a day in the cell, which is in a special wing separate from the rest of the prison. In 2005, 10 years after Bernardo was convicted in the murders of Leslie and Kristen, he admitted to 17 more sexual assaults. The majority were committed in 1986 in Scarborough, while others occurred in the neighboring region of Peel. Toronto police put together a special team of officers to consider Bernardo's confession. In the end, they decided not to lay any more charges because reopening the case would re-victimize the women involved. Police in Peel also didn't lay charges, saying his confessions were too vague to substantiate. Even though Bernardo was declared a dangerous offender, after serving 25 years, he became eligible to apply for parole. In 2018, and again this year in 2021, Bernardo appeared before the parole board, asking to be released. In both cases, he was denied. After 28 years behind bars, Bernardo looks weirdly preserved, with smooth skin and a full head of dark blonde hair. During the last hearing conducted by video conference because of COVID, Kristen's mother, Donna French, read a statement with her aging husband, Doug, by her side. She said that time has not healed the pain of losing Kristen. She described the pain as a life sentence. Through her lawyer, Debbie Mahaffey, Leslie's mom, said the parole hearing felt like her daughter's body was being exhumed all over again, describing the process as another violation. Paul Bernardo, who is now 56 years old, is eligible to apply for parole every two years for the rest of his life. And while there's little chance he will ever be released, the process means there is also little chance that his victims, their families, and society as a whole will fully heal from his crimes anytime soon. Thanks for joining me over the past two episodes as we look back at one of Canada's most famous criminal cases. It's a tough one to hear, but also very important to remember. History of the 90s is going on a break for the rest of the summer, and we'll return with a new episode on September 1st. In the meantime, why don't you check out some of the other great shows on the Curious Cast podcast network, including The Ongoing History of New Music, Dark Poutine, and The Nighttime Podcast. If you've got an idea for a show you'd like to cover when we get back, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at that 90 Podcast, Or you can send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kanzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.